Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And if you want to support the show, please check out our merch store at beyondblathers.square.site and take a look at the animal stickers and postcards we have for sale. So today we're so excited to be joined by Adele Pentland, paleontologist extraordinaire. And Adele is going to be telling us a bit about Amber today. And I've really been looking forward to this episode because Amber is such a complex topic, paleontologically and also socially. And I'm just so excited to have an expert on here to like enlighten us about all the awesome Amber facts. So thank you so much, Adele, for coming on the show. No worries. Thank you so much. I'm it's been a hot minute since I've like been deep in amber research, so I'm so looking forward to like talking about it. Awesome. And so did you want to uh, just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, sure. So currently I'm a PhD candidate at Swinburne University of Technology, and I'm an honorary research associate with the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Natural History Museum in Winton. So both those institutes are based in Australia. I'm Australian. And yes, the my main focus at the moment is researching pterosaurs. So they're winged reptiles that lived during the Mesozoic alongside the dinosaurs, things like Quetzalcoatlus, which you both have already covered in a previous episode. And the other pterosaur that you can find in New Horizons is Pteranodon. But Before I was getting into researching pterosaurs, the reason why I wanted to do research in the first place and the project that I got to like cut my teeth on was actually researching amber. So I did that back in 2016, which is, no, 2015. So like quite a while ago, but yeah, so that was an honors project. So in Australia, we're a little bit different to the rest of the world. An honors year is actually its own separate degree. And it's sort of like a one year masters. So by the end of it, you're doing your own research project and you're, we had to finish up with a 40 page dissertation. Um, mine ended up being like 150 pages with all the appendices in the back. I just like stuck a bunch of pictures in the back there. But I spent a lot of time like looking down microscopes and trying to find little trapped organisms in amber, which is, yeah, one of the very cool aspects of amber research. Yeah, that sounds amazing. That sounds like like last summer I spent a lot of time looking at bugs on pins and it sounds similar, except it's encased in this rocky substance and also is millions of years old. So that is so cool. I did want to ask, when you were doing your amber research, did people bring up like Jurassic Park a lot and that whole like amber connection? Yeah, I mean, it's like inescapable. And I do love Jurassic Park just in that it's gotten like lots of people into dinosaur research. It's actually really interesting seeing the amount of people like sort of my age, but also maybe like about 10 years older than I am. Um, Just like all of a sudden this influx of dinosaur researchers. But in case you're wondering, no, you cannot get DNA out of amber uh, (laughs) because DNA would degrade like way, way, way before that. And a very interesting fact. So Jurassic Park, the, the novel, it came out in 1990, which is actually before the first 
mosquito was found trapped in amber. That is a really interesting fact. Yeah, when they did find it, they were like, ah, and then like, yeah, there was, I don't even (laughs) think there was any blood in it. And then the other thing about mosquitoes is that, I don't know if it's always been like this, but only female mosquitoes will bite because they're looking to get nitrogen out of your blood so that they can lay their eggs. So like when you think about it, it's like, okay, well, roughly 50% of the population, only, you know, the females are going to be sucking blood. Otherwise, they just eat nectar, which is very sweet. Oh, I feel worse for killing them now, (laughs) indiscriminately. (laughs) Okay, cool. But before we get too into it with Amber, we always see what Blathers has to say about whatever we're talking about each week. So if you bring Amber to Blathers, he'll say, Amber is formed from the sap of ancient trees that hardened over time. Because of its beauty, it has often been traded and used as jewelry throughout history. However, individual specimens may contain ancient plants or insects trapped inside them. These are valuable resources for learning about ancient eras, such as when the dinosaurs roamed. And this is why they are sometimes displayed in certain, ahem, exceptional museums, like mine. Cute. (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. Any, any, um, is, is every, is Blathers, uh, correct in his... His little quote there. Anything you gotta rip apart? Um, so unfortunately, Blathers is incorrect. Amber is not formed from sap. Amber is actually formed from tree resin. And what's interesting is that I looked back in like previous iterations of the game and in like the first version of Animal Crossing that came out on the GameCube, they had that correct. And at some point they kind of went, oh no, Amber is tree sap. And the reason why this like kind of grinds my gears is that sap is sugar. So sap is what transports sugars and nutrients in a tree. And obviously you can get products like, obviously after processing, you can make maple syrup out of tree sap, but you can't, you can't fossilize sugar (laughs) because like it'll go moldy way before that. And I'm not sure if. Um, you've sort of like dug into the fossilization process that much, but normally the way it works is you have some living um, organic material and then the best fossilization processes are when they're covered up relatively quickly with fine sediment because it, um, it stops oxygen getting to it. And then normally, yeah, it gets just buried by more and more layers of sediment and Obviously, as you get further down into the ground, there's more, um, it's an increase in temperature as well as an increase in pressure conditions. So when you think about that, like sugar doesn't stand a chance, basically. But yeah, it's like a common misconception. And another thing about, okay, so the difference between, say, tree resin and sap, more generally, tree resin is a lot stickier and not as runny, but they're actually produced in like different parts of a tree. So if you cut a tree in half and don't do this, just look (laughs) at the diagrams online. Someone has already done the work for you. So the sap is, it's basically released around the outer edges of the tree. So basically tree resin is produced in the vascular cambium, whereas yeah, sap sort of on the outer edge, but Yeah, if you just look at a tree and it's got all this goop, for lack of a better word, uh, coming out of it, 
it's really hard to sort of work out what's what. Um, but yeah, generally tree resin is something that a tree produces in response to something attacking it, essentially. So it might be insects, it could be bacteria, or it could be fungi as well. So it's basically trying to make sure that whatever is sort of trying to infest it doesn't get too far into it. Otherwise, if that infestation gets really bad, then it'll kill the host and it'll kill that um, tree. So there's that. Like another thing about tree resin that really blows my mind is that there are some trees that will produce like kilograms of resin in a day and botanists today aren't sure why. So as you can imagine for someone who's trying to like study amber and it's sort of at that intersection between like botany and geology and biology, it's really hard to sort of work out what it is you know, what's causing all that amber to be found and trying to predict where you might find more. But I should point out that resin and sap, these are things that are sort of only produced in trees. Uh, So in terms of your proper like biological terms, things that have secondary lignin. So like soft, squishy plants like uh, liverworts, bryophytes, Equizetals, which are also known as horsetails, things that generally grow like less than 30 centimeters tall and don't have like rough brown bark. Those aren't the things that will produce tree resin. And then, yeah, the groups that produce the most are uh, things like pine trees, like the pinidae as well. But yeah, so I'll just clear that up that blathers, yeah, it's not tree sap, it's tree resin. And I'll actually, I'm so sad that they asked the original uh, description from the GameCube version of Animal Crossing because it's really good. Can I like flip the script and can I read the definition? <laughs> oh, yes, please Yeah, do. go ahead. It's, it's quite long, but I have it pulled up at the moment. So, um, <clears throat> who? Again, I say who? Just look at this amber, stoutly preserving the pale reminders of our past. And this is quite a large, full-bodied specimen. A what? Smooth, exquisite. I'm reeling in awe. Amber is a form of tree resin which has hardened and been preserved in the Earth's crust for millions of years. Resin is produced as a defense against insects and disease. It seals wounds, allowing trees time to heal. Sometimes unlucky insects get caught in the resin too. I wonder what's in your amber? A fly? Perhaps a mosquito? Amber, you see, is a preservative of miraculous proficiency. Bits of amber are like miniature time capsules. Who? Mercy. What prattling? I must beg your pardon. I imagine you feel as though you've been captured in time. <laughs> I love that. I love that dramatic reading. Yeah. That was excellent. <laughs> I'm like about to lose my job over here. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta put more heart into the eh what's. <laughs> yeah, good job with the oh, oh what? <laughs> and, you never um, quite know how to pronounce that one. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. That's so much more detailed. Yeah. It, maybe they were like, uh, they had to click the skip button too many times, so we have to cut it down or something. Like That's so strange. Maybe. It's always interesting to hear things that, like, I don't know, seem like I should know as a ecologist that resin and sap are different things, but I, I guess I wasn't listening close enough in plant science. <laughs> I have to review that stuff. I feel like lots of, like, yeah, you look up, thankfully, like, the first thing that pops up in Google is that it does say that it's, like, 
made from resin and not sap, but I feel like more stuff in pop culture, not just Animal Crossing, New Horizons, like, gets it wrong. But yeah, I mean, unless you study plant sciences, you're just like, oh, there's, like, stuff gushing out of that tree. Must be, (laughs) I don't know, sap? Yeah. Maybe it's just because, like, a lot of other plants have sap, so we don't think about other plants having different chemical compounds and stuff yeah i'm not sure but um yeah the other part of the little definition that blathers gave that is correct is that amber is great at preserving small-bodied organisms so he touched on was it insects as well as he says ancient plants or insects yeah so obviously that's incredible just in that even though there would have been like many, many, many insects running around when dinosaurs were running around as well, we don't find them because they are harder to fossilize, even though they have like an exoskeleton that's quite tough. There are, you know, certain settings where you might find lots of fossil insects. Um, Off the top of my head, there's a site in Australia that's like a lake bottom. So you find lots of like larvae of insects as well but obviously you might not be finding ants and you know other very important insects that have like co-evolved with plants over millions of years you're sort of like missing that but you can actually find small vertebrates in amber as well and not just insects you can find other things that aren't insects but are other arthropods so things like arachnids um ticks as well and yeah i've seen like photos of like a very small but complete scorpion inside of amber and then one of the craziest things that i read about being preserved in amber was like part of a tarantula and it was like mostly just legs but it was like 10 centimeters of its legs so they reckon that the tarantula this was in mexico i believe they think that that tarantula must have been more than 20 centimeters in size which is i hate <laughs> i hate spiders i hate like big hairy spiders I, it's, it's just a visual thing for me and then i was looking back through some of my notes like getting ready to talk to you both about amber and i remembered and saw that they actually have spider silk preserved in amber and it's 140 million years old and it's the Holy. earliest known evidence that spiders were producing the silk and making webs the way we know them today, which is absolutely incredible. So amber is incredible just because, yeah, you have this three-dimensional preservation of like very small organisms. Uh, you can find like bits of enantiornithian birds as well. So I'm not, I'm not sure if all of them have it, but like they're the ones that have teeth in their beaks and stuff. So you might find like, um, like fledglings, and like parts of them, I think a di- like a small dinosaur tail has been found preserved in amber before. But then you can also get like a snapshot of what animal behavior is like. So I mentioned that I did amber research uh, in 2015. That was part of a bigger paper that came out last year. And one of the headlines that like all the papers were obsessed with was that, and I didn't find the specimen, but there were two flies that were mating inside that amber. Wow. Um, That's amazing. Which is kind of, it's 
incredible that you can have like these snapshots of animals like interacting. And I remember as an undergraduate student, our professor brought out all these um, specimens and one of them was a piece of amber and these ants, it had several ants in it and they were carrying their larvae and trying to get them to safety, but they got trapped in amber. And yeah, it's kind of like, but yeah, you get all this interesting stuff in amber. Another really weird specimen that I remember off the top of my head is this specimen and it had spines from a larvae echinoid. So that'd be like a little baby sea urchin-like creature. And it also had like little sponge spicules in it. So like the very, very, very tiny like microstructures of sponges. It sort of looks like the wave breaker in Animal Crossing, you know, that big thing that you can put on the beach. Um, It's like that kind of shape, but made from silica and produced by sponges. So that, and then they were like trying to work out what type of like paleo environment is this in? Is it like almost like a mangrove situation where you have these trees producing resin, but then you've got the tides coming in and ah, it was just, that was one of the harder things to sort of wrap my head around. Cause most of the time it's just like, it's in a forest, it's <laughs> in land. And then no, nope, all these marine fossils were found and um, these specimens that I think was from France. I was wondering, it sounds like there's some amber that has like really small materials in it, but then you also mentioned finding part of like a small dinosaur tail. So are there some like quite large pieces of amber that have been found? Yeah, so I actually, so as amber appears in game, it's like almost as big as the villager's head, which I was like, oh, that's ridiculous. What's the largest piece of amber? And unfortunately it's in a private collection, but it's basically half a meter cubed and it weighs like 50 something kilos. Uh, and it's actually from Sumatra uh, in Indonesia. Um, but yeah, before that, I thought that the biggest piece was like 10, maybe 12 kilos. But yeah, there was just this one big piece and it's not as old as like some of the oldest amber, which is maybe why it's so big. But yeah, I was, I had to eat my humble pie to be like, oh, mate, yeah, amber <laughs> can actually be that big. It's not that common. I guess, because obviously like it's a lot easier for it to get broken up and all that. But yeah, Um, another thing that I noticed in game, like it appears very uh, rounded and smoothed and quite a lot of amber can look like that because amber can float on water, unlike just about every other gemstone you can think of. So it is very low density off the top of my head. I think it's 0.4 grams to a cubic centimeter. So you can actually find uh, in the Dominican Republic, a lot of that amber is actually found washed up on the beach. So it has that beautiful, like tumbled appearance, like uh, river stones uh, in a fast flowing river. They're all rounded and smooth because uh, the abrasion from the water and rubbing up against other stones, like smooths off their edges. But yeah, it's, yeah, the first time I picked up amber, like a decent size, it blew my mind because it is so light and it yeah it's like a really it's just such a weird thing chemically so you touched on a previous episode that it's like one of the few organic gemstones but 
unlike just about every other gemstone you can think of, you can't actually write like a chemical formula for amber because it's just made out of like carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And actually you can, so even if your amber doesn't have anything inside it, it's still an incredibly useful fossil because you can analyze a very, very small piece of amber using a technique called chemical spectroscopy. And basically the premise of that is you take a bunch of particles and you like throw them at the specimen you're analyzing. And depending on how they like scatter and deflect and bounce off what it is you're studying, that will tell you how heavy those actual like molecules are. And when you do that, you can actually work out, broadly speaking, what group of tree produced that resin, which I think is super cool, especially if you don't have other plant fossils and not just like their leaves or, you know, big things of petrified wood where you might see like the arrangement of the whorls and the branches and work out what kind of tree it is there. Obviously, trees have, you know, lots of pollen grains as well. They can fossilize as well but in some cases they can be obliterated from the fossil record if like that rocks had a really hard life um so yeah amber can be really awesome for that especially if it's been like a little bit protected and it's sort of preserved with coal which is more plant fossils when we think about it this is crazy that like okay yeah we can't get maybe dinosaur dna from amber but we can figure out what kind of tree it's from. That is mind-blowing to me because it just seems like goo coming out of a tree and yet with chemical spectroscopy... Wow, I can't say that word. (laughs) (laughs) And yet with science, you're able to to figure this out. That just completely blew my mind. Yeah, so it almost has like a little... Like it has a fingerprint of like where it came from. And it's... Yeah, it's sort of like the tree's own DNA. One of the, when I was actually looking at how the amber is displayed in the museum, once you donate it to Blathers, one of the interesting things about it is, and I love this aspect of how they've um, done the fossil wing of the museum, is that if you look on the floor, it sort of branches out and you get a sense of like what, you know, how things are related to one another. And it's sort of more focusing on the insect in the amber itself when it's displayed that way rather than the amber itself and it's just like oh yeah duh there are like no plant fossils in animal crossing to find so they had to sort of display it that way and just kind of like mm, almost shoehorn it in and once i noticed that <laughs> it's it's bugging me <laughs> <laughs> yeah it definitely is a very like biased fossil record on our animal crossing islands they really just ignore paleobotany yeah, that's so funny, because that's like a whole, like, kingdom of life. Like, you have Arky, you have Animalian, you have Plantain. Yeah. <laughs> in a corner in the dark. Oh. Um, another thing that you can actually find in um, Amber is you can find, like, fungi in Amber. Um, the most common stuff is, like, fungal hyphae, which is just sort of, like, branching, squiggly things. But there's, like, there's a particular book... That's really good. Um, I'm pretty sure it's called Dave Grimaldi, Amber, Colin, Window to the Past. I think in that book they have like this this tiny little capped mushroom inside Amber. Like it's crazy. It's like it's millions of years old. Yeah, I could talk about Amber all day. I just love that it preserves all these like weird, cute little things that 
you just will not find in the fossil record because most of the time they're like soft squishy things and what i love about it too is that when you're looking at especially the insects when i've seen insects in amber i'm like they look like i would not if, if i saw that just you know walking around outside i would never be like that's a weird looking creature like it looks identical essentially to what we have today and yet it's so old and so it's crazy to me that you've got amber sort of showing us that things you know have changed a lot in some ways but in a lot of organisms they've you know they've been around the way they look today for millions and millions of years like I just think that is so cool and just looking at these pictures of amber from this book like they look so similar to today these these arachnids too wow I mean Obviously, insects are, and other arthropods as well are incredibly successful at like what they do. They're important components of our ecosystems as well. Uh, but there's one thing one of my biology lecturers like said to me that's sort of always stuck, and that even if an organism looks like relatively unchanged over millions of years, it's like the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland, and that like you have to run and run as fast as you can just to stay in the same spot like even even if something looks unchanged everything else is changing around it mm. you know there are new things that are popping up and like you know its environment might be changing whether it's becoming more arid whether there is actually more increased rainfall the composition of the atmosphere so but yeah i mean it's really awesome that you can find stuff that is like recognizable yeah absolutely yeah and that's such a good point all the things that you can't see all the behavioral changes all the like you know, little imperceptible qualities of like insects. They're so hard to tell, like even just like their tiny little features. And I was wondering, it sounds like there's a lot of amber out there. Is that the case? Like it sounds like it could be found sort of everywhere and that there's a lot of different things being preserved, a lot of specimens. Yeah. So, I mean, normally when people like try and work out like how widespread it is they normally will either be like if it's (laughs) it seems that most people will be like oh if it's found in antarctica or or the arctic then it must be found everywhere i'm not sure if amber's been found in either of those regions but yes certainly it is found in quite a lot of places before so when i was doing my honors research there hadn't been any published discoveries of amber that had been found like in situ. So Australian amber fossilized in amber before we were doing our work. Like there was stuff found at like the very tip of Australia. So if you look at um, Australia on a map, you can see states and territories, Queensland, the top of that on the right hand corner at Cape York, they were finding amber washed up on the beach, but there was a good chance that it was coming from Indonesia because it can float. But yeah, it's found in a bunch of different places. The oldest amber is Triassic in age, which puts it at about 210, 220 million years old, give or take a few million years, just with uncertainty and maths. And once you get to a number that big, and that's from Italy, I believe. But yeah, the amber that I was working on was much younger. It was Eocene in age. And in that case, it would have been about like 40 million years old. So you can find it in a bunch of different spots. Um, apparently in New Zealand, they will sometimes call amber resonite as well. Not sure why they wanted to be dance to the beat of their own drum, but, you know, <laughs> each to their own. But yeah, you can find it in a, quite a lot of different places. 
I'm not sure if you would be able to find amber older than Triassic in age, because the trees that could have produced amber, they might have been around in the Carboniferous, because that's when you have, you know, vascular plants, that's why it's called the Carboniferous, because there's all these coal deposits and stuff. So I'm not sure if they would ever find, like, stuff older than that, but yeah, I mean, they're sort of, like, doing more and more work on it. But yeah, you can find amber in abundance in, like, a few places. I mentioned the Dominican Republic before, and then one of the more contentious areas where they find amber in abundance is Burma. Yeah, um, so we think of amber as being, you know, amber-coloured, obviously, but it actually comes in, like, different colours as well. So most of the amber that I worked on was actually green, so it looked it looked just like glass. Um, but yeah, in that book, Amber, Window to the Past by David Grimaldi, they actually had like this big piece and it was like blue. And yeah, it's basically every single color you can think of. Red, brown, yellow, green, black, red as well. Unfortunately, some amber has like a crust on it. It, um, it gets oxidized and you can't actually you can't see through it using like a microscope and using transmitted light, which is like like a sh torch or beam of light shining through it. In which case, the only ways to analyze what's in that amber would be something like micro CT scanning or CT scanning, which is essentially like an X-ray to try and see inside it. But we can't do that with all the amber that has that crust because it's an incredibly expensive process, a fossil that I've studied the pterosaur that I named, it had been CT scanned and um, it was on the beam line for, it must have been like maybe two days, but that was like $30,000 worth of work just about. Like it, it's very expensive. Wow. So I'd love if technology like got better and there was like a great way of um, quickly analyzing this stuff because like we could find more incredible fossils inside them, which would be, yeah, incredibly exciting. And then another fun amber factoid is, so you can often find air bubbles trapped in amber. Um, anyone who's like done resin casting will know that bubbles are like the bane of your existence and you try and do everything to get rid of them. So they're quite common. And they used to think that if you analyzed bubbles trapped in amber that you could get, you could see what the ancient um, atmosphere was like when that amber was formed that's not the case. You're just analyzing the conditions of your lab. But yeah, it's weird to think that something that's like a gemstone, and it is a solid, it's still like so porous in a way that there's gas exchange happening. But yeah, I, it's mainly just because like it doesn't really have that fixed like chemical composition. Um, and in fact, if you break it, it uh, has something called conchoidal fracture, which is something that quartz, silica, and um, volcanic glass does. So the th important thing about the last one is that volcanic glass, you have a volcano erupt, and sometimes because that molten rock gets exposed to air so quickly, it doesn't have time to like grow and cook those minerals so it just ends up it does the best it can and it just ends up as a mess but like it has all these planes of weakness which is why it sort of it'll break and it might go in like a straight line or it might go in like a little curved bowl shaped line but yeah that's that is basically everything i know about amber in a nutshell 
That's amazing. It's like sea glass almost. Like I love collecting sea yeah. glass and all the different colors and how it's like rounded and beautiful. And yeah, it sounds very similar in a way. Yeah. The sea glass of the land. <laughs> I have to Google blue amber now. I bet oh, that's yeah. like the name of a company or something, but there was <laughs> when I was doing my amber research. So they have geologic formations and I kept on trying to Google this one particular geologic formation and I kept on getting this law firm popping up all the time. I was like, oh, my God, I'm getting trolled <laughs> so hard. <laughs> so annoying. I'm getting happens. a lot of like blue amber properties and like, oh, this blue amber is like got healing properties Mm. oh that's right oh i forgot to touch on this yeah amber i was trying to work out i'm like how long when was the first like amber specimen collected it's hard to work out because like humans have been interacting with amber for like thirteen thousand years Mm. and at the time of hippocrates in ancient greece they were yeah using it in folk medicine a lot of gemstones have their properties i guess or at least that some people believe in so yeah but i imagine blue amber must be quite a maybe more rare type but yeah it looks beautiful it's like it this does. one that i'm looking at is like blue and pink almost and like some of them yeah. look like they have gold flakes in them somehow yeah. like i imagine what is that the, the plant that or pieces of stuff that have got trapped inside yeah it might be like just like little bits of plant and maybe the lighting but Well, we also wanted to talk to you, of course, about the controversy around Amber. And I know that's something that you know about. And yeah, we we would love to hear more about that from you. Yeah. So like other aspects of paleontology, it's not so much like controversy surrounding the fossils and the information that we can learn from them. It's more about the collection of those specimens. And at the moment... There's quite a lot of controversy around the study of Burmese amber uh, due to the ongoing conflict in Burma. And it's actually gone to the point where in April 2020, the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, which is a not-for-profit organization that includes paleontologists, museum preparators, and other researchers internationally, they emailed the editors of several scientific journals and they urged them to temporarily suspend publications on these Burmese amber. And the reason why they're concerned about studying amber from Burma at at this point in time, like it could change, but the current situation in the view of SVP, the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, I'll probably slip into calling them SVP, is that the Myanmar military is in control of mining operations there. And if you've been listening to the news you might know that the military is in control at the moment. And, you know, for years before that, there have been concerns about the genocide of the Rohingya people in Burma. So with that, the reason why, you know, there's this view that we shouldn't be studying it and we shouldn't be purchasing it is that if the military is in control of the amber mining operations, then the amber is a conflict resource. Now, some paleontologists have gone as far as to compare them to blood diamonds, like obviously very strong words, but they're trying to, I guess, convey the severity of what's going on and also bring attention to it. Um, So the amber is being sold and the profits are then being used to fuel the conflict. And again, that's, you know, resulting in genocide 
other crimes against humanity and it's displacing thousands of people. So this isn't to be taken lightly. And with all that going on, you can probably work out the working conditions for the people that are extracting the that amber as well. They're hazardous. So they're not caring about their WHS and all that stuff. So basically, SVP were arguing for, you know, moral decency and stated that scientific discoveries shouldn't be made at the expense of a minority in the grips of a humanitarian crisis. And you'd think that that's something we could all agree on. But a group of paleontologists published a rebuttal in August 2020. Uh, so that's in the form of, it's almost like a peer-reviewed scientific journal. Like, even though the original letter wasn't like a published document, um, they've commented on it sort of in this format. And they, they argued that it wasn't realistic to simply stop researching Burmese amber. And it'd be a real shame if they weren't able to investigate these fossils and learn about Earth's ancient past. And they made a few suggestions. Uh, one, that they could continue to study Burmese amber if it had been collected prior to November 2017, when it appears that the control of the amber mines were seized by the military. Or two, if it was purchased from authorized dealers. Now, those things are very hard to, uh, to control and monitor. They don't often have like a lot of paperwork with these fossil specimens. And yeah, I mean... One of the things that really like pissed me off about reading their response is that they criticized, you know, the measures that SVP were arguing for and saying that they were hard to do and therefore they were bad. And you don't have to have a PhD to work out that hard and bad aren't the same thing. And just because something is hard and difficult to do doesn't mean that it's, it's not worthwhile. So... They also sort of argued in another part that like all of the stakeholders should be brought to the table and that they should all try and, you know, find something that suits everyone. And I just think it's such naive BS to think that, you know, people who are committing genocide and other, you know, war crimes are going to be reasonable and come to new, come to the table in terms of negotiation. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, for me, I'm never going to work on Burmese Amber. That's a personal choice. Everyone has to make their own personal choice. I love to be involved in the research of fossils where I've been able to collect them in the field or, like, I'm working alongside alongside colleagues that were involved in that aspect. And, yeah, it's it's a very difficult thing to do, but, I mean, it's being, you know, brought to light that, paleontology has like a history of colonization and that, you know, lots of old specimens were basically just collected by, you know, straight white cis guys who had like a lot of money behind them because, you know, like when paleontology first got started, it was a gentleman's pursuit and like, you know, even like straight white women weren't able to vote or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, to kind of perpetuate it in these days. Yeah, I mean... It's good that those paleontologists have actually signed a document and said this is the hill that we're going to die on. So I guess if you're working in that field, you can make the choice whether you want to work with those people or not. But yeah, with fossil collection more broadly, you know, quite a few organizations take the stance that, you know, fossils shouldn't be bought. And even though you're supporting like a local economy in many instances those fossil dealers don't want to divulge the location of where an important specimen was found because they're worried about like other 
people, you know, finding their location and they're basically worried about it threatening their livelihood. But then, like, on the other side of the coin, if someone from a more affluent country purchases fossils with the intent of removing them from their country of origin, like, it's, you know, that's not ideal. Like, in an ideal situation, like, every single country would have, you know, a state museum or several museums with paleontologists, you know, born and raised there that are dedicated to working on it and working collaboratively with overseas colleagues. The Burmese amber is on a whole other level. So, and the same goes with um, jade from Burma as well. It too is a conflict resource. So if you're looking at purchasing jade, I would urge you to, you know, strongly consider like, what is the actual cost? What's the human cost of that purchase? Is that something that people need to think about as well in terms of purchasing amber for non-paleontological reasons? Like if there are listeners who are wanting to get an amber necklace or something like that, or is that, would Burmese amber be sold in those situations as well? Or is this more of just a paleontology thing? Um, No, like it could certainly be sold for gemstone. So Burmese amber could be, you know, sold as part of jewelry as well. So yeah, I mean... It, it doesn't take much and it just has to be like a very casual conversation to be like, oh, like this is a great piece. Like, where does it come from? I'm interested in learning more. And yeah, I mean, I'm not super familiar with Burmese amber and how it looks. Um, sometimes you hear with certain, like more broadly, certain fossils, they're sort of identifiable as being from a certain area, but that might be because of the the sediment that's also still like partially left on it and things like that. But yeah, it's one of those things to think about. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I think it's an interesting, I feel like a, a, an example of how science is definitely kind of having this like mo- this era of self-reflection where, you know, science isn't existing in a vacuum and it very much affects the people around and is affected by the people conducting the science. And I think this is such a like good example of that where, you know, yes, we can do the science, but should we and what are the ethics involved and it's it introduces so many more complexities beyond just the the knowledge itself and so I think yeah I find this to be a really interesting and important conversation to be having that's happening around amber but like yes can be applied to so many fossils that have been taken from lands that maybe it shouldn't have or didn't didn't consult the right people about whether those things should have been taken so yeah I just think it's a very yeah very important conversation. Thank you for sharing that. Really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's without making light of the situation too much, like, you know, there's that one line in Jurassic Park where it's like, your scientists were so caught up in like thinking about what they could do. They never stopped to think about what they should. Obviously I'm paraphrasing there, but like, you know, to think that, you know, this isn't a movie, like this is real life. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad I was able to sort of share that and shine a light on it because it's it's sort of only being spoken about in like, even, you know, in w- amongst people who are super into paleo, like it's sort of only coming to light like very recently. Yeah, I think the only reason I really knew that there was any sort of issue with it was because of science Twitter and following paleontologists on Twitter and seeing seeing some folks get upset about that tail that you mentioned, the the feathered tail that was found in amber. And I believe... I believe that one was found in Myanmar or or perhaps it was being used as an example. Yeah, I can't quite recall, but 
a specimen like that was almost certainly bought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Like, I remember that specimen. I can't exactly remember where it came from. But, you know, in those instances, like, they know how important that fossil inside the amber is. So, yeah, it was almost certainly bought. Yeah, and when you see, like, a picture of that amber, you see why this is such a... This isn't just maybe a small beetle in amber we're talking about. Like, these are some really potentially exciting finds, but that makes it all the more important to reflect on whether it's responsible to to do that and, and to, yeah, spend a lot of money yeah. to get it. Yeah, I guess to sort of transition away from the controversy, which is obviously really important, but we'd also love to know more about you, Adele, and like, how did you become interested in paleontology and how did you get into this field? Okay, so I'll try and condense down the long version, um, but Like, any of my family will tell you that when I was five years old, all I wanted to be was a vet. (laughs) And I did not get the marks to get into, like, the course that I wanted to get into uni. Um, So I did, like, a Bachelor of Science, and I found the geology program, and I, like, just fell in love with it. And, uh, yeah, one of the guys, um, Dr. Chris Mays, he was a fantastic lecturer, super passionate, he works on paleobotany. I emailed him the other week. I was hoping that he would like come to field work where I'm based, um, but I won't see him. But yeah, I I don't know. I just found like this intersection of like geology and biology because like, you know, when people ask you when you're a kid what you want to be when you grow up, like I just loved animals and I love learning about animals and I get to do that now and I don't have to worry like the worst you know there's like a meme online and it's like um (laughs) bad day for a geologist like rock on table is now rock on floor you know (laughs) it's absolutely true but yeah I yeah so I uh, majored in geology I did my honors research on amber and then I was like oh my god now I have to enter the real world and like uh, I have to find a job but I want it to be in paleontology and like the one thing that I could find at the time was working as a tour guide at a dinosaur museum like in remote Australia more than 2,000 kilometers from Melbourne I hadn't even been in the state of Queensland um but yeah I was like 22 at the time super naive and was just like I'll just work there um and that was like that's five years ago now. I came up for a like uh, eight, nine month contract and yeah, I just never left. And being at that museum, like I got to see who the researchers were and I knew that like there were fossils sitting in their collection that no one was working on. So after having done the amber research, I was like, oh, I'll work on the insects and stuff. That's probably like in my wheelhouse. I'll start doing that. And I, someone I knew from when I was in undergrad, Professor Pat Vickers-Rich, she said, oh, another colleague of hers, Dr. Steve Porapat, she's like, Steve and I are looking for postgrad students. We think you'd be a great candidate. So I was working on this application to work on insects and a bit of plants. And then they found the most complete pterosaur in Australia. And they were like, Adele, we know you're working on this research application, but if you want, you have first dibs on this other cool project. Um, and I asked my my boyfriend I'm like and he's like you can turn it down but you're an idiot if you do and I was like oh my god you're (laughs) right oh I hate it when you're right so like threw out that research proposal and was starting to write a new one but yeah the reason why in case you're like 
why wouldn't you want to study the pterosaur? That's amazing. I had like no vertebrate background by the time I did. So I did, um, I have a double minor in biology as well. We did like two weeks of jellyfish, like four weeks of insects. We did like maybe one week of mammals <laughs> and vertebrates in general. And like, that was it. So I was like, oh my God, I know nothing. But thankfully, like the people around me were like, we have faith in you, you'll figure it out. And um, because they were like so willing to like bet on me, like it just gave me this massive fire. And I was like, I have to, I have to like, you know, do the best I can to reflect like on them. But yeah, so there haven't been that many pterosaurs found in Australia. There were like less than 20 fossils at the time that I kind of started and two species found. So yeah, in 2019, I named a third species. It's the most complete in Australia. I called it for Draco Lentini, which means Lenten's Iron Dragon. It's not quite as cool as uh, Cryodracon Borealis or whatever it's called, but I try the best. And I really wanted like a name that kids would be able to say pretty well. But at the museum, I'm affiliated with Australian Age of Dinosaurs. We also nickname specimens, so it's nicknamed Butch, which is pretty cool. <laughs> It's um, actually after a person, the previous mayor of, like, the town that I live in. That is so cool. But, yeah, like, that's sort of the long and the short of it. So, yeah, the tour guide job was great because it got me to do, like, science communication and it helped me also work out, um, work on skills, you know, like public speaking and also ad-libbing and that kind of thing. But also being with Australian Age of Dinosaurs in the capacity of a researcher, like I've seen how powerful it is to prepare like a press release and use old media and just, I don't know, gives, gives you like the confidence, like the reason why I wanted to be like, as soon as I saw Beyond Blathers, I was like, ah, that's like, that's like my two favorite things. <laughs> because like I've played every version of Animal Crossing, except for city folk, because we never owned a Wii U. <laughs> but yeah, I'm like a mad Animal Crossing fan. And I'm just like, ah, fossils and Animal Crossing. Um, but yeah, having done like the press releases and stuff, I know that like people who are, who want to report on news and like do content creation, like, m like more than, more often than not, everyone is lovely and they're like happy to like work collaboratively with you, which is really awesome. But yeah, it was great. And it obviously like helped me meet like the people I work with now, my two main mentors, but yeah, that's like a little bit about me and what I do now. And um, I'm actually getting ready. So about this time next month, I'm going to be on the field for two weeks um, on a dinosaur dig. And we're going to go back to a site where we found like dinosaur, like m mostly sauropod stuff, possibly a pterosaur tooth. I don't know. It's like a spike shaped tooth, theropod teeth, crocodile, crocodilian. It's either crocodilian or crocodilomorph, um, osteoderm. So like the bony dermal armor that they find they fossilize in little they're called scoots which is just the cutest name um so the site has all the stuff and the last time we were there i i'm like pretty certain we found amber there as well which is the first for like this geologic formation which i'm super pumped about so it's gonna be fun it's gonna be camping in a stinky shearing shed in a swag for two weeks but yeah, it's, yeah, it's going to be awesome. So I'm really looking forward to that. That sounds amazing. What is it like doing fieldwork in Australia? Like what is it, have you done fieldwork in multiple places? Like I, I feel like I've only heard of Albertan fieldwork and 
I don't know. It seems like when I think of the Australian. I've heard that's intense. Outback, yeah, I, I, I've heard it's hot and I've heard, you know, it's kind of dirty. But uh, I, I feel like in Australia it would be a whole different experience. Like it sounds like you guys have lots more venomous, poisonous critters creeping around whereas in Alberta we've got like black widows and like rattlesnakes and I think that's all you really have to worry about weirdly I've never really worried about like venomous stuff on digs even though there are like a few venomous snakes that you can run into generally okay so I've done field work in two sides across Australia Victoria where I'm from originally and obviously here in Winton in Victoria, the sites that I've dug, been at dinosaur digs at, have been on the coast. So it's very different. You're actually on in the intertidal zone because it's on Parks Victoria land as well. So the way the permits to acquire fossils collects, they all go to Melbourne Museum, previously known as uh, Museums Victoria. And you can't build permanent structures when you're collecting fossils. So the first one and a half, two hours, on site, you're just shoveling wet sand, trying to get to the rock layer that you exposed the previous day. And like, it's, um, you have to sort of roll with the punches. You have to go when the tide's out. And so, you know, there are some days where you might start like a little bit earlier, like not anything crazy, but like maybe 7.30 or eight um, and finishing at 2.30 because the, the tide's coming in at that point. And um, the main two people who have sort of pioneered the dinosaur digs on the Victorian coast. Professor Patricia Vickers-Rich, who I mentioned before, she's one of my supervisors for my PhD, and her husband, Tom Rich. Tom studies mammals that lived at the time of the dinosaurs. And basically, we're sitting on the beach, we find our rock layer, and we can see it's the right age rock, and it's looking good. There's obviously some stuff in it, and I find like flecks of plant material. So we're targeting those layers. And then you have like, you know, a rock, a decent sized rock, I don't know, like 30 centimeters long, you know, you get, you, you choose your rock and then basically you just break it up until everything is the size of a sugar cube. So a cubic centimeter, because he wants to find these tiny fossil jaws and I'm gonna, uh, I don't know what's going to be the easiest search terms, but I have to show you this photograph. I can give the scientific name, which is Oscotria bisphinus nictos, but I think that's going to be, like, pretty hard to Google. So, (laughs) hang on. Dinosaur dreaming mammal jaw. There's, like, this one iconic photo. It's an entire jaw set with teeth, and it's on... Okay, so if you Google dinosaur dreaming mammal jaw, it's, like, on... It's crazy. It's on a pinhead... And yeah, it's this tiny little mammal. It's all its teeth are in there. Like it goes back to the, I'm guessing that's the articular, which for us, I don't know. It's like the hinge of your jaw, basically, that articulates with the, it's, so you're looking at a lower jaw and then it articulates with the upper jaw, but it's like complete and it's tiny, tiny, tiny. Um, So that's why we break them up into sugar cubes. Whereas when I'm doing field work here in Winton, in Queensland, most of what we find are sauropods. They're mostly titanosaurs. You guys touched on this when you did your episode on Brachiosaurus, I believe. So titanosaurs are like the 
biggest group of sauropods, but the ones that we find here, they're mainly 10-15 meters long from nose to tail. Hard to say because we haven't found a complete tail yet, and they're anywhere between two and a half to like four meters shoulder height if they're, you know, just sort of standing walking around. So they're still quite large animals, but yeah, that's most of what we find, and we'll find like a bit of bone exposed to the surface. It's normally quite crumbly, and then we'll like rake and sort of flag the area, work out where the dentist accumulation of bone is, and then we work on the assumption that, okay, hopefully that's the source of where all these fragments are coming, and then we'll just like dig down layer by layer. But we can use like heavy machinery, like think your Tonka truck kind of things. Like we call it a front end loader, but basically you're using it just to try and like move quite hard, dense soil that's very clay rich and just go down layer by layer. Like you can dig all day and you won't, you will not get anywhere. Like it's very, it's very tough dirt, but once you get to the actual fossil layer, it's um a lot smaller. And then, yeah, normally we're working around a sauropod skeleton. They have found something called a megaraptorid theropod. So basically, if you think of the velociraptors in Jurassic Park, it's like the real version of that, but better. Oh, that's so cool. So I'm, I'm annoyed <laughs> that they've misconstrued Velociraptor because, um, yeah, so this one particular dinosaur, so it's a theropod, a meat-eating dinosaur. It has huge claws. I'm going to find my claw. Oh, yes. I've got a replica. <laughs> While Adele's getting that, I just wanted to mention, for those, like, we'll, we'll have to post the photo of this jaw but it's it's literally the size of a a thumbnail so that mammal jaw is incredibly small oh we've got a dinosaur claw wow this is a plaster replica oh my god it's what as big as my face just about in terms of like its length this is the big claw and then dinosaur claws would have been covered in keratin they would have had blood vessels like any claw on a bear or a cat or a dog so it would have been bigger than that but yeah, so the theropod dinosaur has like three claws. This is the biggest, you know, sharp serrated teeth like steak knives that have um, denticles, but they're quite, they're actually quite small. The arms and the claws are the big meat acquiring <laughs> weapons on the dinosaur. And it's, oh, it's probably like oh, maybe 200 kilos in weight, one and a half meters tall, hip height, and then somewhere between five to six meters um, from nose to tail. So like quite big. Yeah. Quite a big dinosaur, not something you want to meet going down a dark alley at night. Yeah. Um, oh man, I'm geeking out so hard right now. This is the coolest. Yeah. And the really cool thing about the stuff in Winton is that they've only sort of been doing like excavations over like the last 20 or so years. So without the Australian Age of Dinosaurs and like full disclosure, I am an honorary research associate there, but Sometimes I work in the cafe. Last week I was concreting <laughs> for something else. Um, so I am affiliated with them. But like, if it wasn't for them, it would just be sort of waiting on, you know, maybe paleontologists from Queensland Museum to like come out. Maybe like they would do that once every 10 years, like depending on when funding is available. But yeah, they go out every single year. Last year was an exception with COVID. And they're finding like these new fossils and... Um, yeah, they have like a fossil prep lab is there as well. And like volunteers, like members of the public can like work on dinosaur fossils and work there. And yeah, it's just like, it's such a good environment to work in. And I'm like, so glad that 
I made the trip out when I was like 22, <laughs> fresh faced. And yeah, when I um, first like moved, I was like, oh yeah, this will like be good on my resume. I'll get like work experience in like another fossil prep lab. And then, yeah, I just haven't ever wanted to leave. And I say this like a bunch of times, like in terms of like Australian vertebrate paleontology, like for me, this is it. Like this is the end game, basically. There's, there's lots of like cool stuff that other colleagues are working on that I can't talk about but like <laughs> it's literally mind-blowing oh uh, well I'm wow. I'm yeah. so excited to hear whatever comes out of there in the future whatever confidential stuff there is but I mean it sounds so neat like you've you've gotten to work on amber and then this pterosaur stuff and then you also found that uh, a laugh for sorid right oh yeah 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 that was <laughs> I forget about that <laughs> um so this alephrosaurine dinosaur. Technically, it's only like one neck bone, but the fact that we... So, basically, we worked out that there was this entirely new group of theropod dinosaurs not known from Australia before based on one bone. That's pretty amazing. And, like, I've held this view since I started getting into paleontology. Like, one fossil can, like, change our understanding completely, which... For someone who's like slightly anxious, it's not great <laughs> sometimes. I've learned to like be a bit more chill and like find my balance with it. But essentially, so they had this they had this weird bone, this vertebrae in their collections at Melbourne Museum and the person who prepared the rock away from that specimen ID'd it, one as a neck bone and two as being from a pterosaur. And um, yeah, so when it was sort of decided that I was working on pterosaurs, I would work on stuff in their collections as well. Like some of the fossils have been there for like 30 years and no one's done anything with them. So yeah, that's why I'm like, we don't need to work on Burmese amber. Like there's all this cool <laughs> stuff. Like, what are you talking about? But yeah, we were looking at it and it's a weird bone to look at. So if you think of a vertebrae, it doesn't look like that at all. Like it's about five centimeters long and one centimeter tall. So like the ratios between the length to the height are really weird. Um, and it's very low in sweeping. It looks like, yeah, it looks like a funky thing you could put in a wind tunnel and you'd get some weird results. So it doesn't look like your garden variety vertebrae. And I was looking at it and I looked at it like two or three times before I realized it wasn't from a pterosaur. Pterosaur vertebrae there, so... The main column, the centrum of the vertebrae, which is like the main sort of pipe-like structure of it. If you look at it, the end of that centrum that is closest to the head is always convex. So it's an Audi. And the side closest to the butt, the tail, is always an any. It's concave. So it's like a little cave in there. And that is like... There hasn't been any exceptions to the rule yet. So that's like a hard and fast rule. And like, yeah, this vertebrae, both ha like both ends were innies. So when I worked that out, I was like, oh my God, it's not, it's not a pterosaur. Like, what could this be? So that was, that was a good, <laughs> good little panic. And then, um, yeah, my supervisor, Dr. Steve Porapat, he was like, oh, well, let me just look at this book on the shelf freaking genius that he is and we we're just flicking through it and so we knew it wasn't from a sauropod because sauropod vertebrae are always a pistocelis so they're the opposite of pterosaur vertebrae but yeah basically that is to say that both ends are not concave like this one was so we could rule that out so he reckoned it was some type of theropod dinosaur and we were flicking past 
a dinosaur from Tanzania called Alaphrosaurus bambergai. And he's like, yep, dead ringer, that's it. And um, so Alaphrosaurus was found in the 1920s um, in Tanzania by a German researcher. But yeah, they used to think that they were closely related to ornithomimosaurs because they're very uh, gracile. That is to say, they're not... So they're opposite of chonky, basically. They're like <laughs> quite elegant. They're they look like their legs have adaptations for running fast, just in terms of the ratio of I think it's like their tibia to like some of their other leg bones and that kind of thing. They've got like a good fulcrum effect. They're they're built for speed. But as it turns out, Alaphrosaurine dinosaurs and their sister taxa, it looks like, the Noasauridae, are part of this bigger group called uh Bellosauridae. Or no, maybe it's a Bellosauroids. Taxonomy terms are the worst. They're so <laughs> similar. Um, but yeah, that is to say that a Bellosaurus basically looks like a T-Rex, except like its skull has like weird ornamentation, like weird bumps and rugose textures. It has like sort of bumps and lumps on it. Not as extreme as Pachycephalosaurus, but like a T-Rex with like a weird head with these bumps on it. And... It's even got smaller arms than T-Rex. It has like two nubbins. I think it's missing wrist bones. It's a weird <laughs> dinosaur. You have to look up a Bellosaurus. So yeah, it's weird to think that these like these very slender, gracile dinosaurs are related to these massive chunks. But that's what the evidence is telling us at the moment. But yeah, it's it's really weird. So Alaphrosaurine dinosaurs are known now from Tanzania, from Africa, from China. They actually have one specimen, uh, one species called Limosaurus, I think it's inextricabalis, but basically they have multiple specimens of that species and a growth series. And what's weird about it is that the juveniles have teeth and then the adults have like a beak. Oh, what? So we've never found a head on any other Alaphrosaurine dinosaur, so we don't know whether ours had a beak or whether it had teeth or not. And then, yeah, there was, like, another specimen from China, which was, like, CCG20001. And then, yeah, we were working on our specimen. So before this, Alaphrosaurines, Alaphrosaurine dinosaurs were only known from the Triassic, they had never been found in the Cretaceous. So that one fossil, as well as it telling us we have this group in Australia, never knew that. At the time that we were working on our manuscript, it extended their uh, temporal range, their range in time, by 40 million years. So wow. we were like, ah, oh, we're so excited. And then some researchers from South America published on there like a month before oh, no. <laughs> our manuscript was submitted. They scooped you. <laughs> Well, oh, them's fighting words. So scoop <laughs> is normally when someone actually steals your research. Oh, oh. They like stole our thunder. They like <laughs> ruined our punchline. I'll say that. Um, mm. But as it turns out, Steve, poor Pat, my mentor, he actually knew that group. And he reckons that he saw that specimen when he went to South America before. But it was just like a bunch of... So it's a, essentially a series of dorsal vertebrae, which is further... In the back, like, think of the torso of the animal. But yeah, he just thought it was really funny that um, <laughs> he had actually seen that specimen and was like, 
oh, okay, you're doing that. Good for you. Um, <laughs> but he he also knew, I think, the first author on that paper. And, like, yeah, we have no, like, ill will towards them. <laughs> it was just... I mean, for us, we're just like, yay, we can confirm they are in the Cretaceous with the second specimen. And yeah, the Australian um, perspective of that story was really cool. But yeah, that was just like a really fun side project to work on. And we got to talk to Dr. Matt Carano, who is like, he's like pretty big in like the American vertebrate, like dinosaur paleontology side of things. He had worked on Alaphrosaurus when that specimen had been taken down when they were doing renovations and he had seen the specimen that we were working on and we got to ask him about it and he was yeah super lovely and was like yeah definitely like you should work on that right away and it's like ah yes sir (laughs) um but yeah it was i don't know it was a fun side project to work on after like doing some pterosaur stuff it was fun to like work on a new group and like learn the lingo and i don't know one of the most satisfying things i think about research is um the struggle of reading and being like, oh my god, I suck, like, nothing's sticking. And then, like, eventually you start making connections and you're like, oh, oh, wait a minute, like, you know, and you can feel it clicking. Like, that is, oh, it's so satisfying. Oh, it sounds amazing. Just, like, hearing you talk about it, I'm, like, so excited. (laughs) You've got the contagious, excited energy about everything that you're working on and your peers are working on and makes me want to go out and do more science. I'm just eager to be in the scientific community again in the university <laughs> setting with everyone. Yeah. I, I just love being part of the museum. Like, mm-hmm. um, I think, yeah, the university side can be like really hard, but being part mm-hmm. of like a museum in the outback, we're not like, so the museum collection manager is essentially like one of the first she like hired me to work as a tour guide. So I know her and I get to speak with her directly. Like it's not like a big chain of command. It's still because Australian Age of Dinosaurs, it's growing every year, but there's maybe what, maybe 30 people or so. Like I know basically all of them, except for like the new staff who haven't worked alongside. I don't know them as well. Like some of them are just starting like this week or in the last couple weeks. But yeah, that makes it, oh, it just makes life so much easier to do research. Yeah, you've worked on so many projects, it sounds like, and I'm sure so many more, too, will come. And before we go, we we did want to talk to you about your Etsy store as well, because Olivia and I both love earrings. <laughs> I'm wearing, like, my big earrings in celebration of you being here. But, yeah, we'd love to hear more about... So for listeners, Adele has, like, a, a very cool store with lots of just different things, including dinosaur earrings. So how did you get into that? And if you want to plug the store a bit... Yeah, um, so if you want to check it out on Instagram, it's at Strange Magic Shop. That's all one word. Um, sort of similar to, I think, what Olivia has said on previous episodes in that the way the school system's set up, like, it's very, you're either science or you're either art, and they just sort of ignore the fact that some kids, like, want to do both and would be interested in doing both. But yeah, the shop has, like been a bit of a sanity saver and if I'm just like working on a manuscript and spending like hours and hours at the computer like I get to like make and draw and it's only recently that I've sort of actually started combining like my love of paleontology with like making wearable pieces but yeah I actually have I mentioned 
this to you before, but these ones, so I mainly work with um, laser cut acrylic. So I'll like draw shapes in Adobe Illustrator and then I'll, um, I'll actually get them sent away to another company in Brisbane and they'll laser cut and send them back to me purely because I don't want to fix a laser cutting machine. <laughs> yeah, Not fair. <laughs> when I'm 14 hours from Brisbane, that's just way too much stress. But yeah, so... I will be doing more dinosaur stuff on the way, but I've also been experimenting lately with resin. So I'm going to launch like a website very soon, which will be www.strangemagicshop.com. But yeah, I have these like very chunky hoops and I actually found these little um, like Fimo polymer clay slices of the animal crossing yes. fossil, like <laughs> so the un-ID'd fossil. And I put them against like a brown background, but yeah, it's, just been like super great and yeah it's when I first launched that big dinosaur collection yeah lots of people were saying like it's allowed them to connect with like the kids in their lives who love dinosaurs mm -hmm. and I, I really didn't expect that <laughs> and I'm starting to tear up um, but it's just really special that I like get to share it with people and there's this aspect, like, it's almost like visual science communication in a way. Like, I'm making these pieces that, you know, they get to wear and um, people will comment and ask about them. And, yeah, I don't know. I just think it's really cool that, like, I get to make dinosaur-themed stuff for, like, women as well. Like, it's really interesting to see how in, like, the kids section, like, there is lots of dinosaur stuff for girls as well as boys now whereas when I was growing up it was just like basically just marketed at boys but yeah, yeah. I, I just firmly believe that dinosaurs are for everyone like irrespective of how you like self-identify and you know they're just they're such cool animals and they're like a good like gateway drug into like other aspects of science <laughs> as well so yeah absolutely yeah I super love being able to like make pieces and yeah at the moment like my next challenge that I want to set myself is trying to do like skeletal drawings but make them cute but not too inaccurate and I'm being I'm being really picky about that stuff but I when I nail it I'm gonna yeah it'll be a good good feeling but um yeah yeah that's a good challenge yeah it's really hard to like because it's just either like the straight scientific skeletals or like things that don't even look right I'm like what what is that bone there like there's a rib cage there what are you doing but yeah absolutely. there's definitely something special about yeah that that wearable science communication and knowing that these pieces came from a paleontologist is just like such a cool combination so I'm definitely going to be putting it in order I just got to like get a lot of stuff to justify the shipping from Australia but I'm <laughs> I'm I'm gonna go for it for sure. I totally see what you mean too about the earrings being signs because I have a lot of um like really big like you have pins, colorful don't you? yeah I have pins and I have like big colorful animal earrings that I often wear and back when I was working a lot at the zoo like kids loved it kids would always try and touch them which was always like a little bit alarming sometimes but it was like <laughs> yeah they'd be really intrigued. I have to make studs now because um <laughs> yeah someone said like they work with you know, a special group of kids and they like, yeah, they want to touch them, but they need something that's sort of like safe <laughs> for their like lobes. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, essentially. But yeah, I was actually creeping and listening to um, the episode of Beyond Blathers, like, Meet the Hosts. And yeah, I just thought it was so interesting that one of the first things that Sophia mentioned about meeting you, Olivia, was your animal pins. Yeah, I have a very extensive collection of them. (laughs) It makes her easy to buy gifts for, too. (laughs) And yeah, I think it's just very, it's like a striking, it's like a Miss Frizzle thing. Like, Miss frizzle from the magic school bus like she wore science communication like uh, not even just embodied but also like space and stuff like that so yeah Mm. and it was so fun and colorful it's so much fun and it's like i don't know it makes it more accessible i feel like it's not like all about papers and whatever like it makes it's that whole like childlike curiosity and just embracing the Mm. the aesthetic too of nature and like i love those earrings like for listeners the earrings that it all showed us were like spark they look kind of sparkly and they they were just it looks like the fossils are like in the soil in the sparkly sand yeah I need to uh I've done like a reel where I tried to imitate you know how you walk up to a tree stump DIY workbench (laughs) and you know you work away and there's like a cloud I've done that before so I think I'm gonna do it again when I like show these off which is gonna be fun the last time I did it my like pet sheep were like in the background having a sniff and you pet sheep yeah <laughs> yeah yes I, love that. I have um i'm actually surprised you haven't been able to hear i've got one at the moment and he probably actually needs a bottle feed very soon so i'm surprised i haven't heard him in the background oh my gosh that sounds adorable so they're not just sheep they're like lambs um yeah so uh two of them are lambs from last year and then yeah i've got one and gosh he must be like six weeks old so he's like the size of like a small to medium dog at the moment but yeah he's very sweet how cute well thank you so much Adele and thanks everyone for listening please leave us a rating and review we'd really appreciate it and don't forget to subscribe and make sure to check out Adele's store at strange magic shop on Instagram tune in next week to learn more about the insects fish and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons Bye. Bye. Bye.